you. Before I go, I just want to thank everybody who's already given to KBU's end of year campaign. And if you haven't, please consider doing so right now. Go to kboo.fm and click on the donate button in the top right. Thank you, and we will see you next time. And welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO is a volunteer powered community platform, which means that we are funded by you, the listener. Today, on a very special Film at 11, it is all Jeff Godsell all the time. With this show, we reveal the full range of Jeff's interest in cinema. This includes Jeff's new look at Wuthering Heights from 1939, another one of cinema's great years. That's followed by Raging Bull, Scorsese's Oscar winner from 1980. But first, we revive Jeff's advice on just how and where to view the types of films he covers here and at his website, Essentials of Cinema. We talk a lot about movies here on Film at 11 because we love them. And most of them are not the ones that are playing currently in theaters. I get asked sometimes about films that people have heard about or maybe seen on my website. And I thought I would take this opportunity to talk about where you can actually see some of these films. The first thing that I would suggest to anyone is to download the app Just Watch onto your phone. This is an app where you can search for any movie title and it will tell you if and where... It is currently available on the streaming services. I use it religiously in my research. It also tells you if the service requires a subscription or a fee, whether or not it includes ads, or if you want to pay for a download and how much. You may find that the film's available on one of the services you already subscribe to. HBO Max has really stepped up their game recently, better than Netflix in available titles. There's also Prime Video and the others. Some of the finest classic international and hard-to-find titles show up on the Criterion channel. Now, that requires a monthly subscription, but they have an impressive archive. Plus, they have rotating monthly themes with films featured only for that month. Your subscription includes email updates on which films will be leaving at the end of the month. Just Watch will also tell you if the film is available on the free library services, Canopy and Hoopla. Now, these are terrific services featuring films often discussed by Britta Gordon here on Film at 11. At the bottom end of the scale are the free services like Crackle, 
Tubi and Plex. These are usually Hollywood films whose prime has passed or were never all that hot to begin with. But sometimes you get lucky, especially if you're looking for a particular actor or director. They do often have annoying ads, but you can skip half of them. For decades, the best place for classic Hollywood movies has been TCM, Turner Classic Movies. The channel is available as a free feature on most cable providers. It's an ongoing channel with scheduled times for films, but some people set their DVRs for the movies that they want to watch later, if you still have such a thing. I'm a little unclear as to how to get TCM movies on demand. I don't actually use the service as I get the titles from other sources, but it's something you can research. Again, all of these services are listed on the Just Watch app, and they do a great job at keeping the titles up to date. But as great as the app is, still my number one source for watching films, old and new, is my local library. If you can actually get up, go pick up and drop off the DVDs like we used to back in the video store days, the library is still your best bet. Why? The extras. It's all about the extras. The commentaries and special features on the DVDs, they can be golden. And if you're lucky enough to get a Criterion edition, that's the best. Not only does Criterion get the best-looking transfers, they dig up amazing archival footage and even create original content, like new interviews with those involved with the film. So if you're living in almost any city in the U.S., you live close enough to a branch library, which, more importantly, connects you to that library system. You can look for that title on their website, order it, and have it delivered to the branch of your choice. I happen to live in Los Angeles, so I have the benefit of two library systems, the county and the city, with branches not too far away. And gone are the days when rentals were only for a few days. You get them for a week, and, provided no one is waiting for that copy, you can renew them at least twice, with no fees for being late on returning. So get that DVD player out of storage, or pick up a new one. You can get a perfectly good one from Amazon for $35, and you'll be glad you did. And finally, for streaming on your laptop or casting onto your TV, if you're able to do that, are the websites. Google the titles, and you'll see that there are three that are worth searching through. The first, of course, is YouTube. If it's an older title, you might find that somebody's uploaded it on YouTube. And hopefully the quality is good enough. And YouTube is available on your big screen service, too, like Roku. And this is not YouTube movies. That's a separate site. That's where they charge you for the movies. Just regular YouTube. Next is archive.org. This is a kind of public uploading service. Many of the titles have fallen into public domain, but I've found many that are not, and in good shape. And finally, there's a site that has been a goldmine for me, ok.ru, which seems to be a kind of public uploading service also. Now, I am not now or ever will be advocating piracy, and the .ru part of this site indicates that this must originate from... 
that unnamed country. And the sources for the actual uploads are pretty obvious when the actual logos show up, like TCM or the DVD distributor. And sometimes you'll hear a BBC announcer over the final credits. But the site's been up for years and nothing's ever been pulled, so it seems to be totally legit. Sometimes there are a few different uploads, so you can pick the best quality. Just be sure that when you Google the title to put OK.RU afterwards, and then your choices will come up. Hopefully this has been of some help to you all and make it easier to live a better life by seeing more movies. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. And you are listening to Film 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Please consider becoming a member today. Next, Jeff on Wuthering Heights. While there are well over a dozen adaptations for the screen around the world of Emily Bronte's classic 1847 novel, Wuthering Heights, it is the first, not counting a lost silent version from 1920, that remains the best known and arguably still the best. Don't you see what he's been doing? He's been using you to be near me, to smile at me behind your back, to try to rouse something in my heart that's dead. You can't. Heathcliff's not a man, but something dark and horrible to live with. Do you imagine, Catherine, that I don't know why you're acting so? Because you love him. Produced by Samuel Goldwyn in 1939, the film stars Merle Oberon as Catherine, Laurence Olivier as Heathcliff, David Niven as Edgar Linton, Flora Robson as Ellen Dean, and Geraldine Fitzgerald as Isabella. Oh, Heathcliff, why won't you let me come near you? You're not black and horrible as they will think. You're full of pain. I can make you happy. Let me try. You won't regret it. I'll be your slave. I can bring life back to you, new and fresh. Directed by William Wyler from a screenplay by Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht, it was shot by Greg Toland with music by Alfred Newman. With all of that talent, you knew it was going to be something. And the truth be told, it is one of my favorite films of all time. It set the template for many versions to come in that it did not attempt to film the entire novel. Rather, only 16 of the novel's 34 chapters, omitting the second of its two volumes. The second volume involves a second generation altogether. And it wasn't until the 1992 film version with Juliette Binoche and Ray Fiennes that this was attempted. By eliminating the second volume, and therefore many characters along the way, Hecton MacArthur's script could focus on the romantic relationship between Kathy and Heathcliff. While largely considered one of the great love stories, there are those who maintain that Wuthering Heights isn't a love story at all. And if it is, it's one where two children and adolescents fall in love and then proceed to torture each other for the rest of their adult lives until one dies and only on her deathbed does one admit to the other that she loved him all of her life. Pretty perverse on paper, but there's no denying that Wuthering Heights is a story about love. It's pain, it's pleasure and its power to endure. In this classic 39 version, the film opens as a traveler, Lockwood, caught in a raging snowstorm, 
seeks refuge at the door of the estate of Wuthering Heights. He is coldly received by his host and his mostly silent wife and two large dogs. Reluctantly, they allow him to spend the night until the storm subsides. He's shown by the housekeeper, Ellen, to a long, unused room upstairs, once a bridal chamber. A mostly restless sleep is disturbed by a cold wind and a window shutter flapping back and forth. As Lockwood reaches out to close the window, he feels an icy hand clutching his and a voice saying, It's Kathy. When Heathcliff hears of this, he rushes down the stairs and out into the raging storm. Ellen tells Lockwood that it is the ghost of Catherine Earnshaw, Heathcliff's only great love, who died years ago. Lockwood tells her he doesn't believe in ghosts. She tells him that he might after she tells him the story that she has to tell. And she begins her tale, and in flashback, years before, we see Mr. Earnshaw, the master of Wuthering Heights, the sprawling estate on the Yorkshire Moors, returning home after a long journey to his two children, Kathy and Hindley. With him is a young boy, an orphan, a waif, that he has rescued from the streets of Liverpool. His name is Heathcliff, and he's come to live with them. The children are a bit aghast. But father, he's dirty, says Kathy. Oh, now don't make me be ashamed of you, Kathy, he says. But as the years pass, Kathy and Heathcliff become very close indeed. But to Hindley, Heathcliff is always an outcast. Years later, after the elder Earnshaw dies, and, and now Hindley becomes the master, he forces Heathcliff to be a stable boy. But by now, Kathy and Heathcliff's attraction has turned into love. Now the grown-up pair is played by Merle Oberon and Laurence Olivier. The two often escape from the tyrannical Hindley and run away, meeting secretly at Penetrant Crags on the Rocky Moors. Fill my arms with heather, Heathcliff, Kathy says. One night, as they are out together, they hear music and wander over to the house of the Lintons, who are having a party. It's a grand affair, and Kathy is entranced. They climb over a garden wall to get a better look, but dogs attack, and Kathy's leg is badly injured. Knowing of the situation at Wuthering Heights, the Lintons, especially the charming Edgar Linton, played by David Niven, insists that Kathy remain with them until she recovers from her injury. Enraged that Kathy would be so entranced by their wealth and their glamour, he blames the family for her injury and curses them all. Kathy remains with the Lintons for months, recovering, where Edgar's affection for Kathy grows. When she returns home, Kathy explains to Ellen, the faithful housekeeper, that Edgar has proposed. Unbeknownst to the two of them, Heathcliff has been listening nearby. What about Heathcliff, Ellen asks. Kathy says she would feel degraded to marry him. Heathcliff, heartbroken, rushes out into the rainy night, failing to hear 
what Kathy says next. That she knows that she belongs with Heathcliff, despite their class differences. Years pass, Heathcliff disappears. Kathy and Edgar are married. One day, Heathcliff returns, now wealthy and refined. It is as if his appearance and manners are meant to impress Kathy. They certainly impress Edgar's impressionable sister, Isabella. And to spite Kathy, Heathcliff courts Isabella. Played touchingly by Geraldine Fitzgerald. Eventually, Heathcliff and Isabella marry. Why do this cruel thing, Kathy says to Heathcliff. Why punish her? Punish me. I am, he says. Every time I hold her in my arms. Every time I kiss her. Isabella's plight is a sad one, and I've always thought it deserved a separate story of its own. She tries so hard to replace the obsession with Kathy and Heathcliff's heart. Look at me, she says. I'm pretty, I'm a woman, and I love you. You're all of life to me. Let me be just one breath of it for you. Throughout the film, the dialogue from Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur's script hits the mark. It's pointed, touching, wonderfully expressive. How much of it comes directly from the Bronte novel, I cannot say. I am ignorant of such things. Either way, they get credit for knowing what belongs in the film. Meanwhile, Hindley's gambling and heavy drinking have brought him to financial ruin. Heathcliff buys Wuthering Heights, but no laughter rings within those walls as it had before. Eventually, there comes word that Kathy is dying. Despite the wishes of a now disillusioned and bitter Isabella, Heathcliff rushes to Kathy's side for one of the greatest deathbed scenes in cinema history. Kathy confesses that she has never loved anyone else as they reach a final place of forgiveness. Even when I first saw the film in the 70s, restored and revived, when this final scene unfolded, there was hardly a dry eye in the house. This version of Wuthering Heights was always intended to star Merle Oberon, who was under contract to Goldwyn, and when Olivier was cast as Heathcliff, Vivian Lee wanted to play their lead with her then-lover and soon-to-be-husband, Olivier. Executives thought she was not well enough known in America. This was, of course, just before being cast in Gone with the Wind. She was offered the role of Isabella, but declined. Amusing to know now about how many clashes there were on the set, both Olivier and Oberon wanted to be back in the UK with their respective lovers, and they never got along with each other either. It is said that they came to detest one another. And Olivier, as others have done, became increasingly annoyed with director William Wyler's now famous penchant for taking dozens of takes for seemingly inexplicable and unexplained reasons. Nevertheless, Olivier, for the rest of his life, and in his autobiography and in his books on acting, credited Wyler for teaching him how to act for the movies. Larry, you don't have to play to the second balcony, Wyler would bark, trying to curb Olivier's theatrical tendencies. Finally, it's often been pointed out how ridiculous the final image of the film is. Of two figures, supposedly the 
ghosts of Kathy and Heathcliff, walking together off into the snow. Fortunately, this is the only case of interference in the film by the producer. It was Sam Goldwyn's idea, and it was added against everyone else's wishes after principal filming was completed. Wuthering Heights got its share of Oscar nominations, eight to be precise, but this was 1939, which was pretty much owned by Gone with the Wind. Only Greg Toland was able to sneak out with a trophy for his great black-and-white cinematography. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Finally, here's Jeff on Raging Bull, that rare film, a personal biopic. For many years now, Martin Scorsese has been considered one of the greatest directors of the cinema. It is so universally acknowledged, it seems almost uncool to say anything bad about him. Still working at the age of 80, there's always a big buzz about his latest movie. It happened with The Irishman back in 2019, and it's happening again with Killers of the Flower Moon, which premiered at Cannes and will be widely released in October. And it's great to see him able to enjoy this kind of idolatry in his lifetime. It even seems to have survived the negative comments that he made about Marvel movies, which, by the way, were dead-on accurate, but often misunderstood. Some of us can celebrate this year as the 50th anniversary of when we first knew that Scorsese was going to be a major player, when Mean Streets was released in 1973. But I don't think there's any doubt that Scorsese's status received a major boost with the release of Raging Bull in 1980. I'm telling you now, if I hear anything, I swear on our mother, I'm going to kill somebody. Well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy, go kill people. Kill Vicky, kill Salvi, kill Tommy Como, kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself the way you eat. Look at you. But it didn't start out that way. Scorsese's biopic of middleweight boxer Jake LaMotta opened in New York to what they call polarized reviews and lukewarm box office. All the usual explanations for this are that its hero is unsympathetic, the emotional punch that the film produced can sometimes be uncomfortable, and that it was in black and white. But you can't keep a good film down, and Raging Bull slowly grew in stature getting eight Oscar nominations and winning one for Robert De Niro as well as editor Thelma Schoonmaker, and now is regarded by the American Film Institute as the fourth greatest American film of all time. The idea to make a film from LaMotta's autobiography came from De Niro, who read the book back in 1974 while making Godfather Part Two. He didn't much like the writing style, but became fascinated by LaMotta as a character. He showed it to his buddy while Scorsese was making Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, thus beginning a series of rejections from the director for what seemed to be very good reasons. I have no idea what this is about. I'm not a sports fan, and I especially don't like boxing, he said. The book was passed on to their mutual friend, Martig Martin, to write a screenplay, but he struggled with it as well. The whole thing's been done a hundred times, he would say. Fighter has trouble with his family and the mob is after him, blah, blah, blah. The years passed and Scorsese's attitude began to change. After nearly dying from a drug overdose and 
worrying about his own career after the debacle of New York, New York, and the sidestep of the last waltz, Scorsese started seeing himself as a fighter. You make movies, you're in the ring each time, he would say. And he would make Raging Bull. No one was very keen on the Marduk Martin screenplay, so in came Paul Schrader around the late summer of 1978 to rewrite the script. Schrader had graduated to the director's chair by now with Blue Collar, but it would not be the last time that he would write a script for Scorsese. There are so many backstories to the making of Raging Bull, I'm not going to recount them all here, but it is worth noting how the rest of the film was cast. It was De Niro who saw Joe Pesci in a low-budget TV film called The Death Collector and got him on board as LaMotta's brother. Before getting the call from De Niro and Scorsese, Pesci hadn't worked in a film in four years and was working in an Italian restaurant in Jersey. Kathy Moriarty was only 18 when she was seen by Pesci in a bathing beauty contest. She proved incredibly right for the role of LaMotta's wife, Vicky. No doubt helped by pointers from the real Vicky LaMotta when they became quite close. Moriarty's naturalness on screen earned her an Oscar nomination as well as Pesci. It's been said by many, and especially recently by those who have worked with him, that one of Scorsese's greatest skills as a filmmaker is as a problem solver. Now, every director better have that in their toolbox or the film will get away from them. There are just too many choices and dilemmas that every filmmaker faces. But time and again, in watching a Scorsese film, you get the feeling that a choice made is just the right one. And watching Raging Bull again recently, I got that same feeling. But there's something unusually urgent or immediate about the film. It's no secret that Scorsese saw it at the time as perhaps his last film, or at least his last attempt at the mainstream. This was not to be, of course, but like its subject matter, the film has a lot of rawness to it, like punches in the gut. There's a tension and a visceral quality to Raging Bull that would be replaced by the polish and structural perfection of later masterpieces like Goodfellas, just ten years later. This is not to suggest that there's anything more haphazard or improvisational in Raging Bull, not more than any other Scorsese picture. Both he and De Niro worked together for months, fine-tuning Schrader's screenplay before filming began. But I would suggest that every day on that set, things must have been supercharged, and it's reflected in the performances of everyone involved. There's an electricity in the air, and it's not surprising when violence erupts, whether in the ring or out. And if Raging Bull is now considered among the greatest boxing films of all time, it isn't by following the ones that came before, from Golden Boy through Body and Soul, Champion, and the rest. Even the boxing scenes themselves are shot differently. In your face, de-emphasizing any heroics. You could even call Raging Bull the anti-Rocky. It's well worth seeing again today, and it's currently streaming on Max. But better yet, the Criterion Blu-ray that was released last year. 
Not only does it include commentaries by Scorsese, Schoonmaker, and a raft of others, but interviews with Jake LaMotta himself, and one from 1981 with Kathy Moriarty and Vicky LaMotta. Great stuff. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. For that, and for all your great reviews and hard work for KBU and Film 11. And, of course, don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for yet more recommendations. And again, thank you for listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Film 11 will be back next Friday with Jeff and the rest of the gang. So until then, keep watching the screens. Listening to KBOO Portland. Hello, my name is TK Kapura and I'm an immigrant from Zimbabwe. I'm the host of the Global Cell, which airs live in the airroom the first Wednesday of the month at 7 p.m. I host immigrants and refugees from various global spots. I like to bring out their lived experiences so the world can know something about them. I like to bring a lot through my guests so we may have diverse experiences, cultures, foods, music, interests, and anything on the platform. We can share and learn a lot through their live instructions. Let's do this together not only for a better platform for our community, but a better community for our platform. Again, 
Tune in for my show, The Global Cell, live in the air room, the first Wednesday of the month at 7 p.m. here on KBOO 90.7 FM, Portland, 